Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Black and Blurred. Hi. That's Darren. It's me. I'm Brandon. Guys, we're on our third leg of our War on Children series. We're going to take it a little bit more broad and more serious in this episode where we're addressing just the whole overall war on family. As a matter of fact, oh, that reminds me. I read something today um, that was incredible. I think it was it was Ali Beth Stucker. We were just talking about her. Um, that I want to read to intro us into this episode because I think it's fitting. Um, This is what she posted. She said, the truth is our society hates children. From pervasive pedophilia in so many forms to abortion to gender experimentation to COVID policy, kids are constantly being placed on the altar of adult depravity. Only solace is a holy, just God who will one day pour out his wrath. I actually... Mm. I, I made a video about that with the song Hallelujah, uh, Revelation 19. Right. Hallelujah. And I was just telling people, I said, hey, <laughs> I was I was rushing through it. I was just telling people, hey, we need to understand one worship, biblical worship, mm-hmm. because in the video, people were recording each other, you know, yeah. uh, and, and also understand what this song is doing in Revelation 19. They're praising God for his justice mm-hmm. and his wrath. Right. And, and that's what the believer does. That's actually a hope of ours. When we look at the evils of this world um, and human depravities, our hope is in God's wrath. And our rejoicing is that we have been rescued through Jesus um, from it. So <laughs> with that, we're going to continue on in this leg talking about the war on family. And we have a special guest here with us. We have Dr. Christina Crenshaw, who's a professor, a researcher, writer, human traffic fighter. Uh, she's also an advocate for integration of faith and culture. And she earned her Ph.D. in education with an emphasis in English from Baylor University. She has nearly 20 years of experience with both secondary and post-secondary education. Uh, she's worked with anti-human trafficking organizations such as the A21 campaign, Unbound Now, the Heart of Texas Human Trafficking Coalition, the Texas Governor's Human Trafficking Task Force, and Operation Mobilization's Freedom, uh, Freedom Climb. So... Um, if you haven't done any of those things, guys, what are you doing? Are you even living? <laughs> uh, but now here's a very controversial statement that I'm going to enjoy so much talking about. After this host of achievements and just uh, ambition oozing from the page, perhaps what she enjoys most in her role is as a wife and a mother. Oh, my gosh. Mm. How controversial. Yikes. Is she... <laughs> is the wife of her husband, Craig, and they both reside in Waco, Texas with their two young boys, Christopher and Corbin. Christina, welcome to Black and Blurred. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. We are glad to have you. We're old friends now. I I know, I know, I know. We've chopped it up, man. We have chopped it up. And I am looking forward to providing this episode for our listeners. Um, So real quick, let's do the due diligence, you know, how did you get into this conversation human trafficking and um did that did that is that what led you into your work at Baylor or did that start afterwards or what you know kind of both and because I I finished my PhD at Baylor University and then my husband and I moved to California to San Diego and I was Mm. an assistant professor at California Baptist University he was just working the business world, but it was actually out there that I heard Christine Kane uh, speak. She's kind of a speaker, writer, uh, you know, 
Christian leader, uh, but she has an organization, the H21 campaign, which fights human trafficking domestically and globally. And I heard her speak at our church. And I think like most people, when you first hear about human trafficking, this was 10 years ago, but I just, you're appalled. You're, you're sort of shocked. It's, it's hard to fathom that in this day and age, mm. people are exploited for profit. Yeah. Um, I mean, really human trafficking is the oldest crime in humanity. People Correct. have been exploiting others for profit. So, you know, so that's not new. I think just so, you know, we feel like we're such a just society and to know how pervasive this is and that it's actually a growing problem, yeah. particularly with online child, you know, exploitation and child exploitation. Mm. That is new. You know, humanity has been sinful since we've made a time. We have looked for ways to exploit each other. But the Internet and all of its, you know, different, you know, milieus is mm. new. That is yeah. new. We've never yeah. exploited people online before or made it so easy and so pervasive. So when I first heard about that 10 years ago, I think I just decided at that point in time, this dovetails well with what I'm already doing as far as education research. I just want to make education prevention research with human trafficking my research focus. Mm-hmm. So from there, did several studies on anti-trafficking prevention research uh, curriculum, helped the A21 campaign launch their curriculum for high school students, mm-hmm. and have just been involved ever since in raising awareness, talking about prevention measures, uh, being connected to some organizations that do restoration, rehab, um, rehabilitation and restoration with victims. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we actually moved back to Waco a couple of years ago after living in San Diego and started teaching at Baylor University again after that. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. I mean, there, we've talked about this in multiple episodes before, just as far as trafficking, um, in general, child trafficking. Two episodes we go, we had a specialist on regarding child trafficking. And it, I think the moment you begin to talk about it, or at least learn a little bit about it, one major thing pops out. The grotesque, disproportionate um, balance of the proliferation of trafficking in the world versus people's knowledge of it. Like, it's extremely widespread. Meanwhile, very little people know about it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I think maybe because I've been so immersed in this, I don't find as many people anymore who don't know about human trafficking as mm-hmm. much as they just have the wrong conceptions. Like they're just misinformed or mm-hmm. they don't understand or they don't know how like pervasive it is. But I, but 10 years ago, when I first started researching and talking about this, I would say I encountered a lot of people who, who would claim like, oh, trafficking doesn't happen in America or it definitely doesn't happen in my mm. city. That's something that just happens in a third world country. And less and less, I'm, I'm finding that to be true because I think there's been enough awareness around this. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Indic campaign or the Giglio, Shelley and Louis Giglio yeah. have the passion movement. They've been really big about raising awareness. So I think there's been enough awareness that people are like, okay, human trafficking is real. Where there is still some misconceptions is people think that it always looks like the movie Taken, you know, and, <laughs> and like very rarely are people kidnapped into human trafficking and sex trafficking more they're tricked they're coerced Mm. into it in fact that's one of the definitions of human trafficking is if you've been tricked coerced into it whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking you know specifically since we're talking about families and kids and you've read the Ali Beth Stuckey quote one of the most discouraging 
stats that I had heard during 2020 when we all went into lockdown is, um, and this is coming from the National Center of Exploitation of Children. Um, they, they do a lot of like the missing children um, campaign, mm. but they have a statistic where they said at the end of 2020, there was a 108% increase of online child exploitation wow, compared wow. to 2019. Right. Now, some of that very small percentage, but some of that is children exploiting themselves unwittingly. Like they, you know, like people are asking for pictures and they're, and they don't know better or, you know, through video games, but the vast majority, and this is where it just is so hard to even articulate this, but it is, it is the exploitation of a trusted adult. It's, you know, a loved one. Right. So, um, yeah. So I think, you know, when Ali Buffstucky says like, it's, it's a founded concern when Mm -hmm. she says like, we, really don't value children. Now, I I think that's a kind of a generalization because there are a lot of people, particularly people in the church who are working to combat sex trafficking and the exploitation of children. So there are people out there, but I would argue you can't really combat sex trafficking without also addressing pornography and pornography is addictive. I mean, this is not just me talking like research shows. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the number one variable of people who are caught selling and buying is Mm -hmm. pornography. No one just wakes up one day and decides to sell somebody or buy somebody their pornography addiction. That's correlated to that right Mm -hmm. now. Like, you know, let me be clear. Not everybody who struggles with pornography will then engage in sex trafficking. However, people who engage in sex trafficking are engaged in pornography yeah. and um the end it um so the end it movement fight the new drug is a great if your listeners are not familiar with them i don't know for sure i want to say they're actually a morbid organization but e- you know either way they're doing great awareness around how dangerous pornography consumption is particularly when it comes to exploitation of women and children mm. but there's just very few people and it's such a weak argument i hear women say sometimes well what about sex workers who want to engage this work i mean that we are talking a small percentage of the population the vast majority of people who would consider themselves even sex workers um want out that is not Mm -hmm. the profession of Mm -hmm. their choice it's not the profession you know they want to be as a little girl no one grows up to want to be to sell themselves you know for sex so that that's sort of a moot point or conversation people try to make um but yeah Mm -hmm. there's a strong correlation between um sex trafficking and pornography I've I've, what's the name of that website you know what I'm thinking about uh there's this there's this like I don't I I guess it's like raising awareness no 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 no, not raising awareness I'm talking about she mentioned sex work and there is this um I forget what it's called there's this website where people go on and they basically like do explicit things for money online Oh, Pornhub? Maybe Pornhub? Only oh, fans. OnlyFans is what I'm thinking of. But I've also okay. heard of Pornhub as well. Yeah. So so Fight the New Drug and Exodus Cry have been really instrumental in trying to get those websites shut down. Mm-hmm. Really on the premise that they have underage right. children on right. there. You know? Right. You know, and... I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to defend fans only or Pornhub in the least, but their, their sort of like retort is, well, oh, we don't have any way of knowing like who's over age and who's underage. Right. But that is just, well, then you, you don't need to get exist, rid of period. it. Yeah. Then, then get rid of it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so I think that like Exodus Cry and Fight the New Drug would take the stance that this is not beneficial for anyone mm-hmm. at all. But because we do live in a free society, 
Um, that's a harder argument to make. So where they, they kind of like sink their teeth into mm-hmm. is, well, you've got children on there and that's not okay. Yeah. And, and they have gained, gained ground on that argument. Mm. That, I mean, th- those, is it right to say that when you'd have those discussions um, that start with trafficking and then it moves into pornography, um, it's not, you're not too many steps away from just talking about the value of women, really. Yeah. Like right, right. the conversation gets very quiet at that point. Why why is that? Yeah, you know, well, and this might be a good time, Brandon, to bring in, you know, what my, some of your listeners may be familiar with me for was standing up for women and children because of the expansion of Title Nine, which the, the, the you know, Title Nine initially was um, implemented in nineteen seventy-two to establish and protect safe and equitable spaces for women in academia and in K through 12 education and in sports. Mm -hmm. And with the new administration, there was an expansion that allows biological males to identify as females and to come into female spaces. And so we're seeing that like university of Pennsylvania, did you guys just hear that the swimming record for women's swimming was broken by a man, by a male, by a male. Right. You know, and, to, and, and initially when I said this on Twitter and went crazy viral, you know, all the things that we talked about before we started recording the show and your mm-hmm. listeners at this point, I tell people if they haven't heard, I'm like, just Google me, unfortunately, you know, like it, yeah. it's mostly people coming to my defense, like Christianity or Christian post and, you know, all of these different websites, world news, mm-hmm. you know, all of these different websites came to my defense, which I'm thankful for. But it was crazy to me that this is even an argument, particularly at a Christian yeah. university. You know, this just seems like such such logic. It's, it's just you don't even have to be biblical. Just be yeah. biological about yeah. this, right? You know, there was a study out of Duke that, that compared the track time of high school male athletes to female Olympic track runners. And the male high school athletes outran the females in mm-hmm. time in every study. Because yeah. biologically they have an advantage. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I know from doing the human trafficking work that I've done that if you open a door for a predator, he's going to take it, he or she, but it is almost always a he. Mm-hmm. It's not to say women don't, mm-hmm. you know, prey on children, they do, yeah. but statistically speaking, it is it is mostly males. So in the in the beginning of January, where I was speaking up against Title IX, it felt very lonely because there weren't a lot of women's voices outside of the church anyway mm. coming to stand with me. But slowly the support started to, to pour in. I think it may have taken people a little while to catch on, but I had a number of people who were, you know, um, like particularly feminist, um, even even those who would identify as lesbian, who would come to my defense and say, like, this really is a war on women. Allowing biological males into female spaces is a war on women. And it's just grievous that people who consider themselves, you know, far more progressive than I do don't recognize this. I do feel a little encouraged though, guys, because I, I feel like the tide is turning some. I don't know if you guys feel that way from January 2021 to where we are now. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I was thinking about, and maybe this is contributing to the tide, I was asking you about this. Are there any stories like the one we just heard about in PA where the roles are reversed, where there is a biological woman who made a splash in biologically male-dominated sports or competition and is breaking rec- records or I getting mean, defeats. Yeah. I mean, the irony in all of this, um, you know, they, it's in the it's it's being shown to us as women's rights in some way. But women, in a lot of ways, are the only victims. 
Yeah. Always. Right. Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, almost none, none yeah, of yeah. significance, you know, like every once in a while, maybe you'll have a female who wants to join the football team right. and, you know, they try to let her hang or she will walk on as a kicker. You know, like mm-hmm. you hear about those stories every once in a while, but, but by and large, it is males wanting to compete in female spaces or to occupy female spaces. And, you know, part of, I mean, this makes me even sad to say, that this was a told you so moment for me mm. because I don't want there to be a told you so. Right. I wish that right. we were rational enough right. to see this coming, <laughs> right. that we don't need told you so. But, you know, Loudoun County, I don't know if you guys follow oh, that. Yeah, message. man. <laughs> Loudoun County is a, is a mess. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there was the biological male who identified as female. So he considers himself a trans woman and he you know sexually assaulted a Mm. 15 year old girl in the bathroom right then Mm. they covered it up yeah moved him to another school and i don't know the details of that case but apparently it happened again there was a second assault and so it's just one of those it's like you know guys and because i'm talking to fellow believers i think we can pause and say this is a hurting community the lgtbq is a hurting community Mm -hmm. they need attention no one wakes up one day and says i am a male but identify as female and they're completely healthy this is you know and and it's Unfortunately, controversial to say this, and I don't know why, because the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostics and Statistical Medical you mm-hmm. know, Diagnosis, classifies this as gender dysphoria. Yeah, it right. is a disorder. That's right, right. And it's a disorder made worse by social media and social trends. I mean, this is well documented. I can recommend Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, mm-hmm. Preston Sprinkle, you know, em- Embodied. These are all kind of faith-based perspectives on how dangerous this narrative is for mm. even the individual, not just other people, but themselves. Right, right. Um, so I th- I don't raise awareness about this without compassion. I'm deeply compassionate, but I think what we're seeing in this cultural moment is that sometimes our compassion is at the detriment of right. the majority. Yeah. That's right. And that's not okay. That's not okay. Right? And it's not but compassion at that point. <laughs> yeah, it's not compassion yeah. at that point. Yeah. It's fear. Um, and I think one of the things you and I talked about, Brandon, in our phone call before we had this podcast was that, you know, love doesn't lie. Mm. So if I have to, because a lot of what I had heard in 20, you know, beginning of 2021, when I stood up against the Title IX mandate was, well, just love your neighbor, just, just affirm and let them in to love your neighbor. And, you know, I just, I, I thought to myself, wait, but that's, that's antithetical to scripture. Yeah. Love doesn't lie. And yeah. I cannot love my neighbor well, unless Correct. I am first loving the Lord with all my heart. So yeah. you know, it doesn't work in reverse. If I'm not loving God in, in truth and spirit and worship, mm-hmm. then I, I have nothing in the tank to even nothing. give to my neighbor. Nothing. You know, you nothing. brought up a yeah. good point. It's, it's when there are never these times where we're hoping for a, I told you so, right? But we harp on it and focus because when we were speaking beforehand saying, hey, no, 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 don't do this. This terrible circumstance is what we had in mind. And so now we would harp on it now to say, um, please pay attention to the fact that this just happened because it can continue happening if we don't do something about it. Pay, Pay attention to the fact that there's young girls who are being abused because of this ideology and mm-hmm. and the only reason they're being abused is because we've deemed certain language and certain opposing ideologies as harmful mm-hmm. and against mm-hmm. it, 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 going against the stream is um is harmful 
So disagreement is harmful in violence. Meanwhile, actual violence is actually pushed under the rug. And so that's why we would harp on it and jump and say, hey, look at this article. Look at this incident. Look at this thing. Not if where I told you so, but to say, hey, this is actually damage that's going on right now. What are we going to do about this? Right. Well, and I think, too, this is one of the first times in history that we have seen a group of people who are claiming, well, these are my civil rights. But we're like, what well, you're asking for civil preferences. Mm. These aren't rights. Yeah. These are mm-hmm. preferences. And they're at the expense of other people's civil rights. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was just on a podcast with um, Sophia Nelson, who is a CNN personality mm. and and political figure, a lawyer, but something very similar just happened to her at her university. And what's interesting, and we we're currently co-writing a, um, a op-ed. We'll see if it goes to print and where it goes to print. We're currently writing this op-ed and we're coming together and we're saying, okay, we share our Christian faith. That is where we are sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is her, her campus is trying to cancel her for sticking up for women's spaces. And she has all of the supposed intersectionality. She's a, you know, a Democrat. She's a black woman. Mm. And the university is, you know, the students are trying to claim, well, you are, you know, you're not upholding your blackness because you won't support LGBTQ narratives. She's like, these are not the same. But segregating (laughs) people based on their race is sin and evil. Separating people based on their sex is actually safety. Like there is a difference. Right. Um, And so I think that that's what we're seeing here that, you know, you have women who are saying we're willing to have conversations about single stall bathrooms. If you identify as a female and you don't feel comfortable in the male bathroom, how about we have, you know, more single stall bathrooms, you know, Starbucks style. Mm -hmm. But the solution can't be to deny reality, to deny biological reality. For sure in the church, we can't negate biblical truths, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, there's a reckoning going on in the church. And, you know, we have, we have to, you know, hold the line on some things that if we don't would be really harmful for women and children. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that's, you know, particularly what we're seeing with like the, the trans narrative mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah, I would say that, 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 and it, and it may, it makes me sad to even say this, but the bulk of the LGBTQ narrative is anti-family and anti-women. 100%. And uh, Yeah. And I think this is like, you know, we're, we're like-minded enough to say that. That's obviously yeah. not something I would go on national television. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, and, it, and it's yeah. not like, it's not, uh, what did Dave Chappelle say? Beating down or punching up? Uh, punching down. Punching yeah. down on them. Yeah. Or, and anyone, and like you said, that, you know, our desire is compassion and it's love, but that's not devoid of the truth, right? Um, and when we talk about narratives, that is a bigger monster we're battling right it's not an individual where my conversation with an individual that may be um, sympathetic to a specific narrative looks very different from when i'm speaking about the narrative itself it looks very different Um, right and i think we have to distinguish between like you know public square state Mm -hmm. spaces in the church and even you know on monday night i was speaking at my church on this and and i said you know guys like we need a reformation and a reckoning with within the church Mm -hmm. on this issue like we have to understand our theology on this 
before we engage the public square. And we also, I mean, this is hard to say, but I do think that this is like kind of what delineates like what is a distinctly sacred space conversation and what is a public square conversation. Mm -hmm. But we also have to understand that there are civil rights we can't deny to, you know, same-sex couples. But where where I think that narrative starts to break down is now you have trans community asking to occupy other spaces right. and we're like hold on this is right. actually an imposition on my civil rights right. you know yeah. you can't say that about marriage but you can say that about letting biological males into female bathrooms right. mm. that is an yeah. imposition on my civil rights yeah or the, allowing a biological male to compete in a female sport right that is not a violation in the name of rights. justice Right. And, and so that's, you know, if, like give people like when we are attacking these things, it's because um, one, we're, we're warning, right? We're salt of the earth. We're light of the world. That's what we're called to be as believers. And two, we believe that when those narratives are being put forth, they're lies, yeah. like they're lies. I remember yeah. right at the kind of the at the end of the Me Too thing, and you know, there was another reiteration of the black and white hate each other thing going on. Um, and then statues are being torn down in the name of hatred and justice and devaluing and the history of the country. Um, and at that moment, I was actually in, uh, there was a day where I went to National Harbor. We live in the DC area. And I went to National Harbor to work on a sermon. And I just looked around, there's di different statues they have there. Um, and it's supposed to kind of like be memorabilia of the country, right? The culture all around you, these different statues. And one of those statues is that, that iconic Marilyn Monroe pose where her dress is flying up and she's bent over. And I took a picture of that and made a post about it. And I said, if the removal of statues is truly rooted in valuing humanity, then how come what this statue represents isn't being brought up? It, mm. it only represents objectifying women. Yeah. That's the only thing it represents. No one mm -hmm. looks at Marilyn Monroe, Mar Marilyn Monroe for her acting ability mm -hmm. because she's been turned into a sex object. And now that right. sex object is smack dab right in the middle of our United States memorabilia. And no one yeah. says anything about it. Right, right. The, yeah, the narrative's I, alive. I, I think... Yeah, it's just people haven't raised a ruckus about that. And maybe they should, but I think it brings us back to a larger meta narrative of like, are, I mean, are we raising a ruckus even about the right things, you know? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I would like to see us raise a ruckus. Like, I, I'm, yeah, the Marilyn Monroe thing, I mean, that's kind of obnoxious, but pornography on the internet is disgusting. And yeah. pornography of children is abhorrent, you know? So it's it's kind of one of those things, it's, but what, what you allow... You, the culture is going to take take and run with. Yeah, and yeah. so if we're allowing the objectification of women and we're making statues and making this like symbolic of the American experience, well, then you can only imagine what people are doing in the dark corners. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah, I was just, yeah, I was just thinking about how uh, you mentioned taken um, and then there's shows that's been running for like 20 years, like law and order SVU. Um, and our entire culture of objectifying, objectifying women, sex being on award shows everywhere, basically every movie right. you can think of, you might think it's harmless, but then there's some sexual innu innuendo. Um, all of that potentially could desensitize people to how prevalent human trafficking is. It just becomes a part yeah. of our entertainment. Sex is just a part of life. 
Like yeah. it's in front of your eyes, no matter where you look. Um, you don't even have to look in dark corners anymore. It's like in a movie. Um, I know. And so yeah. it's people don't, um, you know, that's why they think human trafficking only looks like taken uh, when it's much more subtle. Like we were talking to uh, Dr. Morell last week on our podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And she, she mentioned what you did, you know, about how subtle it is about grooming kids, people who are tricked. Um, and that is one of the more prevalent ways that human trafficking can take hold. It's not always some giant scheme of snatching a woman out of a car. Um, right. You know, like the right. movie says. I, yeah, it, it rarely is. It's the yeah. grooming of children, really. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, the vast majority of sex trafficking victims, not all, there's always, you know, caveats and, and you know, outliers, but the vast majority have been sexually abused, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, they were, they were already groomed for it, which I think just speaks to the brokenness yes. centered around not just sex trafficking, but pornography in general. We mm-hmm. were just such a licentious culture. Um, and I don't know, I mean, that is not ever boded well for any society, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think too, kind of coming back to like, you know, women's spaces and, and that sort of thing, what we're battling with this postmodern narrative, and I'm not going to say it's the first time ever, but for sure it's more pervasive than my lifetime, is that your your sexuality is your identity. Yes. Right. You know, people have right. struggled with homosexuality, same-sex attraction, but if you even look at like the rhetoric of how we have described this, like going back to the 1980s and the DSM-5, mm-hmm. you know, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. Right, right or wrong, it was in there. And then they took it out. Mm-hmm. And then they had, um, you know, uh, transgender identity, mm-hmm. and that was considered a disorder, and they took that out. And then it was in 2013 that they relabeled it gender dysphoria. So we've become really soft on our approach of like what really in the church we used to call sin and outside of the church, we used to call mental health crisis. So when we start to change the linguistics around this to reflect, you know, like these postmodern narratives or vice versa, you know, like you could make an argument for like, which is happening first linguistics are changing, or I would probably assert that like the, the philosophies and the ideology are changing around it, Mm -hmm. but, but we're becoming this post-truth society, you know, postmodern, very relative. And then I think kind of back to Alibaba Sturkey's point, like, then what, where then is the line with our kids? Where then is the line with women? If we can't even use biological reality, it's like throwing biblical truths off the window. If we can't even, you know, define when life begins and when there's a heartbeat, or if we can't even define like who, what is a protected class from sexual, sexual exploitation in our society. If we can't even define like what a woman is and whether or not she has a safe place I don't know where to go from here, right. but, but I do think that it's, you know, the church has to start with getting their house in order. Yeah. yeah. That's engage. exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. I think one of the precursors to what we're even seeing now in the transgender uh, postmodern truth era um, was the lack of truth or I guess biblical teaching on just male and female roles. Um, in general, uh, you know, not get to the weeds of the specifics, but the fact that there is so much feuding and infighting and, and, and people who are not finding their value as a male and a female in their creator, 
but they're finding it in what they do. Yeah. Um, there are some things I actually found of yours. I think it was in a, a work called Propel Women, and it was titled Your Work Matters. And you said, God designed men and women to co-labor in communion with him as a holy offering to him. Long before the great fall, there was great work, and it was an act of worship. And I think that that's so profound. And I'm going to have you elaborate on that a bit. But it's so profound because I, my heart breaks when I see women who are displeased with where they are because their definition of womanhood comes with a certain amount of degrees or a salary. And the same thing for men. Their value is found in that. Um, but elaborate a little bit on what you were talking about there. Yeah, you know, so this is a little bit of a transition, but I would say the Lord really worked in my heart on that because I am by nature an achiever. I don't know, you know, some people think bringing up the Enneagram is like super controversial. I think it's just another personality test, you know, whatever, but I you know Enneagram three high achiever. And one of the places that the Lord had to work on that in me was when I was an assistant professor at a university out in California, California Baptist University on a tenure track, which is just really hard to land and really hard to do. And we're out there and I end up, because, you know, I'm, I'm a mother. I planned that. I went through four years of infertility. So, you know, I, I really wanted to be a mother. Um, and lo and behold, the Lord blesses us just, you know, 21 months later with our second son, totally by surprise. So here I am with two children under two. And I'm commuting an hour and a half, three days a week up to this university from where I'm living. My husband is doing mergers and acquisitions of medical devices, traveling all the time. Mm -hmm. And I look at her life. I'm like, this is not sustainable. Something has to give. It is either going to have to be my career or it's going to be my marriage and my family. Mm -hmm. but, but we, this is just not sustainable. And so I spent a lot of time praying and fasting about that. And I felt like the Lord asked me to release my career for a season, to just release it, walk away, trust him. And I knew I said, then this was seven years ago. And, you know, like I, I maintained this. And I, I said to my husband, I was like, this is professional suicide. I can do this in obedience to the Lord and trust that he will, you know, grow a garden elsewhere that he, he sees me, he knows me, he knows my desires, but I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that like, I can just walk back into a tenure track position. Mm -hmm. And I, and I haven't since then I've been teaching as a lecturer, which is fine, but like on the hierarchy of academia, it's much lower than assistant professor. But in that journey, I, you know, I laid down what I thought was my right to a career and to, to be a high achieving woman um, in order to give a year of full attention to motherhood. Mm. And, and I will be really honest. I mean, motherhood is hard. It, well, anybody mm. who's home full time with kids, you know, mother or father parenting is hard, but there's just, there's something about like having to nurse around the clock, you know, mm. your, your body changing, like there are real biological differences here back to our conversation yeah. that are happening with a woman that a, that a male does not have to, you know, you know, my body's trying to heal from birthing and, and nursing and, you know, I'm sleep deprived, all of these very real things. But in that journey, I, I do feel like the Lord was so faithful to, as I stewarded well, what he'd asked me to steward in that season, which was motherhood. He was faithful to say like, Hey, here's an anti-trafficking organization. Do you want to partner with them? Do you want to help them with their curriculum? Do you want to be on the board of Propel Women, which was this national Christian women's leadership organization that was launched? Do you, are you ready? You know, it's like a couple of years later, you know, my kids are getting older and they're starting to go to part-time Mother's Day out. You know, do you want to start teaching part-time again? You know, they, they've 
gotten older, they're fourth and second grade now, mm. do you, you know, like here, here's an opportunity to teach more full time. So I, I think that, you know, to your question, the idea of like co-laboring with the Lord, that still very rarely even means our career. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like our professions come and go, but our vocational call to to walk with the Lord and be missional and to steward well what he has given us, that never changes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's really, you know, like kind of like the work and faith perspective when I when I talk on that and write on that. It's a vocational call to to first and foremost understand that I'm a child of God and that what he gives me to steward, I'm going to steward unto him, that that is an act of worship. It's at the end of our life. He's not going to say how many degrees did you get? Did you get a tenure track position? You can say, mm. I gave you this to steward. You know, how did you do? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I read, uh, I think it was, it was, it's on the higher thinking blog. This is another one of your quotes. You said often when Christians engage in conversations about our work, we reduce discussions exclusively to our professions. You just mentioned that specifically how best to bring our faith into professional spheres. Though those conversations have significance, they are also quite limiting as they do not speak to a deeper purpose for why we work. And I think that's what you were just touching on. I think we miss true vocation um, and what it means to be called by God to be his stewards here on this earth. And and I think you, you hit the nail on the head, limiting that to what we do based off of the, the tasks that come after the papers we signed and the salaries that we get and, and, and everything else being moved to the side regarding how I am a father, how my wife is a mother, how I'm a husband, and how my wife is a wife. You know, all of those things are, are quite beautiful, and it's a part of our worship as Christians. Um, I don't know when you wrote this, but were you speaking to a specific, I guess, time in your own life during that? You know, that was just a couple of years ago, and it was coming right out of that season, kind of like in between, because because I left the tenure track position seven years ago, mm. and that was, you know, written right in between probably like three years ago, this season of like, okay, I'm coming back into working with these lessons that I've learned from what it looks like to really lay down my career because the Lord asked me to, mm-hmm. and then trusting that he would <clears throat> resurrect or revive that in a different way. And so it wasn't what I thought it would look like, but I do trust that, you know, I was obedient to him in that. And that's what really matters. And one of the things I've said before, you know, speaking and writing is I'm like, I, I hope that everything I do points to the glory of God. Like, you know, ask me not literally you guys, but just in general, ask me like how much I love Jesus. Like Mm -hmm. I hope that in all I'm doing, I'm exuding love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because everything else pales in comparison. If, if the, the overflow of my work is not bringing glory to God and it's not leading other people to Jesus, then what are we doing? Mm. And that's everything from changing diapers to leading meetings in a boardroom, you know, like if, if, what I'm doing isn't, you know, honoring God and leading other people to Jesus, then we're missing it. Yeah, we're missing yeah. it. I, yeah. You know, someone asked me, this may be tangential and not related, but they were asking me, I did like a pro-life statement on Instagram today. I'm like, mm-hmm. made a little real, figured out how to make a real. That was hard, y'all. <laughs> I, I'm still like, learning a bunch of things on Instagram. I know I'm like a geriatric millennial technically, but I'm like, <laughs> this, this is a whole new, this is hard. <laughs> Anyway, I figured out how to make a reel. It was like on pro-life and really kind of making the argument that like, hey, most Christians are 
whole pro-life, there's this argument, you know, right now against Christians, particularly conservative Christians, like you only care about life in the womb. And I'm like, listen to me, (laughs) the data actually shows that Christians, specifically conservative Christians, but Christians are the ones who are giving the most philanthropy. Like if you look at tax returns and you look at data, like Christians are the ones who give more generously than any other demographic when mm. you break it down, you know? So yeah. like that argument just doesn't even work. I know. Like, How did that become such a prevalent response? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a squishy retort back to, you know, it just makes, I think, the other side feel better for not being pro-life. Yeah. You know, like their, their only rebuttal to that is, yeah, well, you only care about life in the womb, but then you start to break that apart and you're like, well, that's not true because I actually give to a lot of anti-trafficking organizations and mm-hmm. I do anti-trafficking work and that's for sure whole life. And right. we give to Compassion International and I've gone on mission journey. So I'm like, that didn't, that didn't even work. I don't know what yeah. y'all mean by I only care about life in the womb, but I have, you know, like most people I know who love Jesus have a history of going to the nations, of giving to generously mm-hmm. so I, I, I yeah. no, that doesn't even work um i'm not really sure how i got off on on that tangent other no, than yeah. someone someone asked me like what is your you know stance on the death penalty and i'm like okay you know hot take but most of the time i'm actually anti-death penalty because i believe in redemption and restoration and i want everybody to have a chance to come to jesus mm. now of course there again there's outliers caveats yeah it's nuanced but if you were to make me choose i'm gonna say you know what i believe everyone should have an opportunity to come to know jesus like that is what we're here to do mm-hmm. so you know and and, and to just to offer the counter I guess, response to that, which would still be in agreement with the value of life, is that the the existence of the death penalty isn't a proactive, um, I guess, re- the death penalty would not be a proactive law. The death penalty is a reactive one based mm-hmm. off of the value of life. <laughs> when you yeah. take someone's life, it is that valuable that it's worth one. And I know that that's a disagreement, but I think... Based on your point, people would be against someone who is for the death penalty by saying you don't value life. And it says, well, no, I actually value it. And this is to deter you from wanting to take someone's life by saying it's going to cost yours. Yeah, it's a natural consequence for, right. for their reaction. Yeah, so I don't disagree with that. But I think for me, you know, kind of the point is bringing us to conversation is that I'm always looking for opportunities for redemption and restoration because that's the gospel yeah. narrative, right? That's mm-hmm. the whole biblical narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so whether that's applied to the work that I'm doing or that's applied to how I see life, like that is just my worldview and my lens. Like mm. where do I see redemption restoration? And that's part of my litmus too for deciding my, can I get behind this narrative? I don't see a lot of redemption and restoration mm. in, well, let's allow biological males to come into female spaces. <laughs> like yeah. maybe in some crazy contortion of an argument, you could try to say that that's redemptive for that one person, but that for sure is not redemptive for the whole. Yeah. You know? What, what would you say to a fellow sister or brother who is occupying either, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter, Christian or non-Christian space, and they're up to this point, they've said to themselves, hey, there's a lot of things going wrong around me, but I don't want to talk about it because I'm afraid of what may happen. What, what would you yeah. have to say to them? 
Well, I had a lot of people who rallied to my support behind the scenes in 2021 when I was, you know, walking through that crucible at Baylor. And I would say you, you, I do want to caution people to use discernment based mm-hmm. on your circumstances. If you think it's going to cost you your job and you're not having to like compromise, like any moral biblical values, like, you know, just so like specifically a lot of people reached out and they're like, you know, I work for Google or whatever, fill in the blank. And they're making me put pronouns in my profile. And I'm like, mm-hmm. gosh, I wouldn't want to do that either. But would I quit um, and put my family's livelihood on the line for that? Right. I don't know. You know, I mean, like that, that's a tough situation to be in. But mm-hmm. I would say in general, we do need more people who are willing to stand up to logical fallacies, to postmodern narratives that are that are not true, that are actually really harmful. We need more people who are willing to say like, hey, biologically, this is real. Hey, biblically, this is truth. Or the, the or the, the the lies just plow the truth over mm. you know truth doesn't change throughout time and that's that's part of you know what i say to other people i'm like i am always going to side with 2000 years of orthodoxy yeah. before i'm going to side with this postmodern moment right. so the onus is on the people who are claiming things like biology isn't real like right. hey sorry like history and evidence is on our side I'm going to need you to prove that or people who are saying things like, well, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, you know, which is part of like this whole deconstruction narrative. And I'm like, Mm. well, you know, I've got like St. Augustine and C.S. Lewis on my team. I'm going to need you to prove like the onus is on you. So I think take heart. That's what I would say to a brother and sister in Christ. You know, it might be a little bit different if it's somebody outside the church, but Hey, take heart in knowing that you you have truth, you have history, you have theologians on your side. Just walk in that family legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to be contentious. Sometimes it will be. It just will be. Scripture says that they're going to hate you for yeah. loving me. It yeah. will sometimes be contentious, and you just have to just know it's not personal. They're not hating you. They're hating the Jesus that you are walking with and defending. Um, But I would say where possible, be at peace, you know, like don't look for opportunities to just light a fire. Like with me, I wasn't looking to light a fire. And I think that that's part of why a lot of people came to my defense. Um, But when a fire comes to your doorstep, don't acquiesce, don't capitulate. Mm -hmm. You're just doing harm to everybody else by trying to appease that moment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's good. Those last, man, that's good. Did you have any, Final questions or anything? No, I mean, as yeah, um, I did have a a, a a statement, but I forgot it. This you, is helpful. Yeah, Thank no. You. When she was just when she, <laughs> yeah, no, it will come back. <laughs> okay. Well, um, well, no, I asked you that because we're running low on time. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, it'll come back as soon as we say cut. Yeah, of course it will. Well, so I, well, let me ask you this one last question. Um, to the Christians who right now are overtaken by the narrative of compassion and injustice and rights, um, and as a result of that, they see beauty in transgender um, or biological men occupying women, female, biologically female spaces. Um, they see beauty in um furthering the homosexual i guess praising the homosexual narrative that ends up being an attack on families they see the beauty in abortion 
because it's not abortion to them it's what's female rights right? It's biological rights and health rights um what loving response with the truth would you have for them yeah so i would say if i'm talking to people who are inside the church because that yeah, to me is correct. actually that's the only one we are you know correcting yeah, in that. well I mean, I do think that we're often called, like, you know, if we're called to, like, civil service or public spaces, then mm -hmm. you might be a believer who is in a space that is, you know, overtly pluralistic or even secular. But I think, you know, when I'm talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, I would, I would say, like, hey, can you biblically defend your definition of justice? Because... Mm -hmm justice will never invalidate what God has said to be true, what scripture says to be true. And so again, like if they're not sure, because a lot of times they're just confused, they don't yeah. know, then I would just lovingly say like, hey, can you use scripture to help me understand where you're coming from? Like biblically, how would you defend that? Um, you know, and then if we're outside of the church, you know, we're talking about social justice, which I think is a whole different, like, I'm sure you guys are nuancing that in your podcast yeah. the biblical justice versus social justice but even with social justice like that should work for the common good of society and so if you can't really help me understand how taking life is really best for the common good then it falls apart really quickly you know because a better solution to abortion would be adoption or even from a secular perspective like prevention in the first place right. Right. You know, like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not opposed to like handing out multiple forms of birth control mm -hmm. if it would help reduce unwanted pregnancies. Right. I don't even know if that's really, you know, it's not really, that's a whole different issue. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think within the church, we, we have to re reevaluate how we're using the word justice because justice cannot undermine what God has said to be good and what God has said to be true. Um, and so if we're trying to impose a, you know, cultural moment definition of justice onto the church, then, then that's heretical. I mean, really that, that that's heretical. And if in the public square, you know, Christian narrative aside, we're talking about justice, then it's got to be best for the common good. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then I, I think we need to reevaluate that. Yeah. You know, that that's what I would say, you know, kind of lovingly to, to someone asking. And I imagine you guys have talked about this, you know, on your shows too, but, you know, we, we have to also have a reckoning with like who we're calling victim and victimizer yeah. and who we're calling oppressed yeah. and, you know, an oppressive mm -hmm. because, you know, what, what yeah. I mean, what I experienced at Baylor was was pretty victimizing. You know, like um, I didn't really go into the story again. People can Google it, but I had college students who threatened to harm my kids at their school wow. because they said me standing up for women's rights was um, uh, transphobic yeah. and that my words were hurtful. And so, literally, one of the quotes from student was, "I we're going to hurt your kids the way you've hurt us." Yeah. So it's that whole wow. idea of like your words are violence. And right. I'm like, no, my dissenting opinion is not violence. Right. But right. you threatening to go to my kids' school and harm them is that is you right. know, so it's like yeah. we've got it, we've got to reevaluate. Like just because you're in a minority identifying group, because really one percent of the population is actually transgender, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you automatically get special permission in a pass to yeah. then threaten me you know well you know we're getting into the heart of critical theory that births yeah. critical race theory and 
critical, uh, I guess, feminist theory, uh, critical queer, queer, queer theory, those things. Uh, yeah. And that's the heart of it. That's why we attack it, because it, it's harmful. It's harmful. I mean, at some at one point, I was both victim and oppressor because Every day I'm black. Are. Right. Right. I'm yeah. black and I'm a man. So it's <laughs> depending on the world I'm in. <laughs> I'm I'm getting hurt and hurting people yeah. every day, you know. Yeah, and I can identify with that to some extent because I'm like I'm white, but mm-hmm. I'm a woman. Yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah. it's like I know. So it's like every day. I, I but that is actually like what Scripture says too. Like every day we are being like transformed from glory to day, glory, mm-hmm. and every day we're sinners. Yeah. So like, let's just stop acting like there are groups of people who can cause no harm to other groups like yeah. we, mm-hmm. we all hurt other people every day and that's why we need grace and that's why we need redemption that's exactly right and, and we gotta at least get that heard of straight within the church you yes because otherwise like what are we going to say to an unbelieving world that's exactly right yeah. that's exactly right well christina this has been a fantastic episode and i think that you have in 50 minutes um made us all about 10 years smarter <laughs> <laughs> with that with that information um, and we're grateful for you. And also, just as siblings, we're grateful for your courage and boldness to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, um, even in hostile s- scenarios. And we are grateful that no harm has fallen to you and your children, your family. And we pray that that continues to be the case. Oh, thank you, guys. And I'm thankful for what you're doing, too. Um, you know, I uh, have a my, my stepsister is married to a black man and mm-hmm. they have two children and i have watched them their junior high and high school go through 2020 really confused and yeah. looking for voices yeah. that are just coming from a biblical perspective mm-hmm. and that i think was hard for them to find you know we talked right in offline about you know like tony evans and um i don't know if you guys are familiar with carol swain but there have been some people oh, that yeah. I found where I, you know where i've said like hey Here's some voices to listen to, but I'm I'm thankful for more brothers and sisters, um, you know, of of every different you know race and every different you know. Well, there's only two genders, but you know that are actually saying like, <laughs> hey, we need to have yeah, uh, caught myself, but we need to have you know like a reconciliation and reckoning back to biblical values. So yes. thank you guys for doing that. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. We greatly appreciate it. So those who listen, we hope that you were encouraged by this episode, and we hope that you are standing firm in the truth of the gospel as well. And you're not standing firm for controversy's sake or for warring of words' sake. Um, we're standing firm for the sake of souls, for those who are lost um, and are lost in a web of lies. And so we're here with weapons of warfare that are not carnal, but they tear down those lives. And they are strong enough to tear down every lofty opinion waged against the knowledge of our God, who is the truth. So stand firm in that. Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of Black and Blur, where you are guaranteed to hear one of two things, our humble opinion or the facts. Holler at us. out and I also hope that it's